John chapter 10, and I'm going to read verses 22 to 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good courtroom drama. Who doesn't? They're amazing. I'm the kind of person who sort of binge reads John Grisham novels on holiday. I really enjoy them. I enjoy the cut and thrust of the debate, the arguments that fly between well-quaffered, unnecessarily attractive humans as they have their brilliant minds racing. They try to outdo each other with their rhetoric. And all the time you're wondering, who's going to win? And quite often in a courtroom drama, you're uh, the watcher, you are on someone's side, aren't you? And you're wanting someone to win. You're either on the side of the one that's been wrongfully accused and you're desperate for them to be found not guilty. Or you're on the side of the prosecution and you're desperate for the truly guilty to be really found guilty. And it's all very tense and it's dramatic and it's exciting. I love a good courtroom drama. And to some extent, that is the scene that we kind of read tonight in John. A very similar kind of scene. We have a confrontation between Jesus and the Jews. And in many respects, what we see is a dramatic courtroom drama playing out in front of us. Except that the stakes are really high. And we see that it is Jesus who is in the dock. He is being put on trial And as we go through this courtroom scene, we'll see that we have the three main ingredients of a trial. We have an accusation, we have a defense, and we have a verdict. But before we get into that, let us pray together as we start. 
Heavenly Father God, we thank you for your word tonight. Thank you that it does us good. I pray that um, we will be both comforted and challenged through your word. May we go out of here changed, we pray, after having met with Jesus Christ, our Savior. In your strong name, amen. Point one of three, you'll see them on your service sheet. Please have that open as well so you can take notes. Our accusation, a hidden accusation, verses 22 to 24. Let's get right into that. Let's read those two verses again. Verses 22 to 24. At that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, we have to do a bit of work uh, on the setting of this passage before we really get into what's going on. And helpfully, John gives us a really good descriptive marker that sets off this passage. That's what we read in these first two verses. We see where we are and what's going on. And we learn three things just from these first two verses, this descriptive marker. First, we note that there is a time jump between this passage and the previous one that Callum brought to us last week. We're now much later in the year. We're now in winter. Secondly, Jesus is found in the colonnade of Solomon. He's in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. And the the colonnade of Solomon was the covered portico entrance to the temple. So he's not outside the temple where he would normally teach. That's the comment that John wants to make. And the reason for that is because it is winter. And, And even in Israel, winter is very much like Scottish weather. He would have been blown in and driven in by the cold and the damp. He's inside taking cover. But thirdly, it is the Feast of Dedication. Now, very quickly, the Feast of Dedication isn't a spiritual, official Old Testament festival, not like the Festival of Tabernacles or Passover or Purim. Um, It represented Jewish freedom. The Feast of Dedication is what the Jews now called Hanukkah, the celebration of taking back of the desecrated temple from the the previous overlord, Antiochus Epiphanes. This all happened in December of um, uh, 164 BC through the leadership of a very famous Jewish person, Judas Maccabeus, through the act of a remarkable campaign of brilliant guerrilla warfare. You can read about it in the Apocrypha. It's really fascinating. This festival then, if you like, was their Independence Day. And it's the mention of this festival that gives this um, part of our passage flavor. Because as much as verse 22 helps us know where we are in time and space, and as much as it resonates with eyewitness account, all that is helpful, more importantly, it helps us with the background as to why the Jews are asking the question that they are asking. And the question is a very simple one. And on the face of it, there's not much to it. Verse 24. So the Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Seems a reasonable question to ask of Jesus. It is, in fact, however, a threat. Now, note the action of the Jews. They surround Jesus. This is not set up as a quick chat. And the sentence, how long will you keep us in suspense, is better translated or better intoned, how long will you keep annoying us? Or, closer still, how long will you keep taking our life away? It's all very antagonistic. It's all very confrontational. 
And with this confrontation, Jesus does what he does best. He drags them into discussion. And his answer, or his defense, if you like, is a long one. It runs all the way from verse 25 down to verse 38. Therefore, note what he is not doing. He does not turn around and tell the Jews plainly, I am the Christ. He doesn't say those words specifically. I remember when I was working for UCCF, I met up with a student and I read, I was reading John's gospel with them as part of the Uncovered Covered John series that we were going through. And the one question that the student had all the way through was, why doesn't Jesus, when confronted with a very clear question, just tell the people plainly that he is the Christ? Why does he seem to keep going around the houses, talking about the Old Testament, talking about his works? Why does he seem to keep things cryptic? And this student likened Jesus to a politician, never quite plainly answering the question. And that's a really good point. And the answer to that is because the Jews have no idea. They have no idea who the Christ really is or what he's meant to be. Because as we sit here in John, with the backdrop of the Feast of Dedication, we see very clearly that the Christ the Jews want is a Judas Maccabeus. Everything about this scene is set up by John to show us exactly how the Jews really feel about the Christ. This winter Independence Day festival reminds them of exactly what kind of Christ they want, what kind of Christ they're looking for. And think about what their situation is. The Jews are a subjugated people again, under the iron rule of Rome, once again dominated by a foreign power. They want another Judas Maccabeus. They want a Christ that will overthrow Rome just as he did all those years before. They want a Christ that will be a military leader just as Judas was all those years before. They want a Christ who will hand back power to the Jewish leaders in the temple. Just as Judas Maccabeus did all those years before. That's the Christ they want. And that's the Christ they're expecting. But that is absolutely not the Christ that Jesus is. He's completely the opposite. He is someone who is eroding their power. He's someone who is questioning their existence and drawing men and women and children to himself away from the temple gates. He is someone who is humble, someone who suffers, someone who is really weak, someone who is only bothered about service. And because of all those things, he's a threat. And he's a threat because he can't be the Christ according to their view. And that is why Jesus has to be so careful about his claiming to be the Christ openly in public, so plainly, because people do not understand who the Christ really is. You see, Jesus has to do so much work to get them to see who he's really claiming to be. He has to remove an awful lot of rubbish theology so that he can establish himself. He absolutely cannot be seen to be something that he's not. He has to make sure that he is claiming that he is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not some conqueror who is going to overthrow Rome. And to the Jews, anyone claiming to be the Christ who didn't look like their Christ was getting in the way. They were getting in the way of that mighty sword-waving, horse-riding warrior they so desperately wanted and for whom they were so desperately waiting. And so anyone claiming to be the Christ who wasn't their Christ had to be removed. 
Don Carson says of this passage, had Jesus spoken plainly about him being the Messiah, they would have completely misunderstood him. For their notions of messiahship could not embrace a suffering servant or a kingdom not immediately political or military. In short, the Jews are not looking for clarity here so that they may worship Jesus. They are looking for clarity so that they may kill him. This is not a positive search for the Christ. This is a negative attack of crying foul. This is not genuine intrigue. This is a hidden accusation. That is why Jesus has to do so much work before he can exclaim Christship. You see, in answer to that student's question, Jesus isn't being cryptic. He is actually being incredibly clear. And that is why the very next point that we turn to in his defense, Jesus deploys two pieces of evidence. Or, if you like, he recalls two witnesses to the stand. And the first witness is the works that he does that testify to who he is. And the second witness is the law itself. Now let's turn to those two in order. A full defense The witness of his works, 25 to 30. Let's just read that as we go into this bit. Verses 25 to 30. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Jesus' defense is a simple one. He's saying, I've told you who I am by my works by my many miracles that I've done in public, in my Father's name. And these works bear witness to who I claim to be. In other words, as one commentator puts it, there is enough evidence here in what Christ does through his miracles alone to point people to the fact that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one from God to save his people. But he says to the Jewish leaders, despite all this weight of evidence, you do not believe. Why do they not believe? Well, let's step back a little bit. As we can see from reading through this part of this passage, it's quite obvious as to why John has placed this part of his gospel where where he has. We're continuing with the shepherd theme, aren't we? And what we read here in verses 27 to 29 are exactly the same words that Jesus speaks in the previous passage about him being the good shepherd. They hear my voice, I give them eternal life, etc. It's all lifted from John 10, 1 to 21. Everything that Callum talked about last week. Jesus is again then talking here of his works as a good shepherd. Dick Lucas, um, when talking about the Good Shepherd, uh, makes the point that he really loves the image of the Good Shepherd. He loves the traditional image of Jesus carrying lambs and having children coming along beside him. And it's an image that is much maligned in some respect in our Christian culture, for, for good reasons and for bad. But it is an image of goodness, isn't it? And love and protection and care and gentleness and, and strength. This Good Shepherd defends the defenseless and looks after the lowly. It's, it's a good image. It's not an offensive image. 
But it is to the Jewish leaders. It really is to the Jewish leaders. As Callum reminded us last week, this is horrifying for them. Everyone knew that the shepherd, what the shepherd metaphor meant. It was the sign of the king of Israel from the Old Testament. The shepherd metaphor was attributed to God's leaders over Israel, the sign of David himself. And the Jewish leaders were to assume that mantle and Jesus rids them of it. I am the good shepherd, not you. I am the true leader of Israel, not you. This is a real statement of war. This is why the Jews here are so angry. This is why they feel so threatened in verse 24 with their question. How long will you keep annoying us? How long will you keep taking our livelihoods away? How long will you keep treading on what is ours? How long will you keep taking away our position, our authority, our rule, our power, our rights, our law, our prosperity, our nation? But as bad as this is, Jesus takes the shepherd metaphor one step further and he drops a bombshell in verse 26. Why do these Jewish leaders not believe in Jesus as the Christ despite the weight of evidence for his public works and miracles? Verse 26, you do not believe me because you are not a part of my flock. In short, not only are you not shepherds, you are not even sheep. You are not just redundant in your leadership of Israel. You are not even inheritors of God's covenant in Israel. That's a devastating critique on the Jewish leaders. If you were part of my flock, you would understand who I was. That's the flip side of the argument. But you don't understand, even though there's enough evidence, because you aren't sheep in my flock. And verse 27, sheep in my flock hear my voice and they follow me. They understand, they get it. And if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus really lowers the boom when he claims incredibly clearly the words that will actually eventually doom him from an earthly perspective. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. As if removing them from their roles as leaders wasn't enough. As if removing them from the covenant of Israel wasn't enough. Jesus now places himself as higher importance than they are, on equal footing, on equal partnership with the Father. And it is at that point that we see the real reaction of the Jews. Verse 31, they immediately picked up stones to stone him. But before we move on, it is not that Jesus is merely being provocative by claiming that he is one with the Father. He does it again in verse 38. He is claiming that he is that one with the Father because that is the logical endpoint of his argument. It makes sense. These miracles have one clear message which Jesus puts twice into words. He is one with God the Father. He is one with God the Father. If it is true that Jesus performs these incredible works and miracle acts that are incredible in nature and impossible for humans to do, it must be that he is from God. Who else would be able to do them? Thus, the only end point of that is that Jesus is God. He is one with the Father. He is the Christ. Jesus is brutal in his simplicity. Which is why there's no comeback in verse 31, notice. 
just hatred and stoning. They want him gone. They want a Christ of their own devising, not the Christ who challenges practices and presuppositions of the Jewish leaders. But as we see how his works testify to who he is, the first bit of evidence he uses in his defense, he backs this up with his second witness, the witness of the law. Verse 31 to 38, just read those with me. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I am not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, then believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him. He escaped from their hands. Now, what is going on here? What is this talk of God's? Well, firstly, very importantly, the second bit of Jesus' response mirrors the first. He's maintaining the same argument, verse 38. The works that I do are so that you can see that I and the Father are one. So he's, he's still saying the same thing, except he's underpinning it with the law. And uh, to do that, he quotes a very uh, niche passage in Psalms. And this is how we get to it. The Jews are going to stone him in verse 31, so Jesus presses them further. Verse 32. Which one of my works are you stoning me for? In other words, which one of them was particularly a bad enough thing for me to be killed? And the answer to that is obviously none of them. And we know as a church, as as we've been um, going through Mark, that the Jews struggle to find anything to pin on Jesus. He's sinless. He does everything right. He answers correctly. He's above reproach. And Jesus knows that, and he knows that they know that. And so the answer comes back. It's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And this is the crux of the problem. We can't get him on actions, they say. We can get him on what he claims, that he is God that he and the Father are one. That's blasphemy. And so now that Jesus has managed, brilliantly noticed, to fence the Jews into admitting that his works are not bad, but in fact, as they claim, good, he then tackles the issue of who he claims to be. And this is where Psalm 82 verse 6 comes in. Don't turn to it. We don't really have enough time, but but let me just um, summarize what's going on. Um, God is talking about his leaders in in Israel, and he's reminding them that they are important, but mortal. And then this verse says this. The Lord said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, Jesus is quoting this to to, to prove that he is God. How does that work? Uh, This is Jesus' point that if mortal leaders in the Old Testament were called gods with a small g in the text and sons of the most high by God himself with a small s, then why is it an issue that Jesus should speak of himself in the same terms? That, that should be okay, because God called leaders sons and gods. 
He takes that one step further. Why then is it a bad thing that the actual Christ would speak of himself as God with a capital G and as the Son of the Most High? Now that's his first point, and then he moves on. He says that's fine, but that has to be backed up by authority. Not just anyone can claim to be God and the Son of the Most High. And that's exactly what he does next. Note verse 37. Now, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. In other words, if I don't have the authority that someone sent from God the Father would have, then don't worry about it. You don't have to believe me. That makes sense. But, verse 38, if I do... If I do do these good works of authority, then believe in them that you may know and understand that I and the Father are one. Jesus' claim to be the Christ is incredibly logical. His defense is robust. His two witnesses are wholly reliable. And as a consequence, again, there is no comeback from the Jews. They have nothing to say. Instead, we see in verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. They can't find fault with Jesus' argument. But they are still stuck on the point that we started off with. He is not the Christ we want. And that, coming to our last point of this evening, is their verdict. And we see that we have a divided verdict in verses 39 to 42. Let's read these last three verses together. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man is true. And many believed in him there. The verdict of the Jewish leaders is clear. Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. He is guilty of being a pretender to their Christ. He is guilty of taking away their livelihoods and their elevated position. He must be put to death. But the verdict of the people, many believed in him. And why did they believe? Because unlike John, who couldn't do any sign, Jesus had. They saw his works. They get him. They understand him. The very thing that Jesus tells the Jewish leaders to believe in, his works, his signs, are the very thing that these people see as being the most defining thing about Jesus. He did signs. John didn't. But everything that John said about Jesus has come true. He must be the Christ. There's a divided verdict. And there always is where Christ is concerned. And this is where we, the reader, (coughs) step into the fray. Because we have to leave John tonight where John leaves us. And that is with the question, (coughs) what is your verdict on Jesus? Is he the Christ or is he not? Now, that is an obvious question and we all saw it coming. But do not switch off. This is really important. This is really important. These passages of John are asking one searching question every single time. Do we know Jesus or do we not know Jesus? And as much as we hear this all the time, often this is all we need to hear. And it is really important. And tonight, Jesus has divided this room. Do you know Jesus? If you're not a Christian here tonight, and and if you know you're not, what is your verdict on Jesus? 
You see, God with a capital G, the Son of the Most High, the Messiah come to save mankind from all its wretchedness, to be the true king and shepherd over Israel, and therefore to be the true king and shepherd over all Christians the world over? Or is he a fraud? <clears throat> Merely a man who has delusions of grandeur and ideas above his station, and therefore a liar at best and truly evil at worst, dragging people away from reality on a deluded ego trip promising eternal life. And looking at the argument of Jesus tonight and the argument of Scripture, these really are your only two options. There is no middle option. It's black and white. Jesus cannot be merely a good man if he is lying. So therefore, he cannot merely be a good teacher. He cannot be that. It doesn't work. He has to be evil if he is not speaking truth. And if he isn't evil and therefore speaking the truth, then he has to be God. That's the argument of the passage in a nutshell. And that is exactly what we are left with tonight. And much like the Jewish leaders in the courtyard and the people along the Jordan, you have a decision to make. There's a fantastic verse right at the end of this gospel, which wonderfully supports everything that has been said today about the signs and works of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the very end of the gospel, John chapter 20, verse 30. And this is John's summary for his whole book, the reason he wrote these words. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these ones that are included are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's not just a great summary of the whole book, but a perfect summary for this very argument. This is what Jesus is proving here, this cold winter's afternoon in the portico of Solomon, surrounded by people who hate him. Know me by my works. They are written in here so that you can believe in the Christ. You can do that now, today. Are you the Christ, is the question. Look at the signs, is the answer. Look at my works, the evidence that I am sent from the Father, and that I am one with him, I am Christ. I do these also not just to show off who I am, but that you may believe in me and have life in me. Or to use the language of chapter 11, so that my sheep will have eternal life and will never perish. Guys, this is life or death stuff. I'm not being dramatic. The fact that Jesus promises resurrection life and eternal life to those who believe in him means that eternal death for those who don't is a very real thing. Does Jesus fulfill everything we need for security and peace in life? As he promises in verse 27. Or am I wanting, like the Jews, to be looking elsewhere? Wanting for another kind of Christ, for another Judas Maccabeus, or for money, for relationships, for jobs, for security in order for me to be safe. And the Bible tells us that all those things are temporary at best. The incredible victory of Judas Maccabeus, though great, was short-lived. Another superpower took over Israel. Look at the state of our politics this very day. Can we honestly say that worldly political and economic stability is what I'm really looking for? Absolutely not. No, Jesus is the only stable, consistent, eternal, unchanging hope in a very unstable, inconsistent, temporary, and changeable world. 
And for those of us who are Christians here tonight, or to those of us who think we are Christians here tonight, how do we read this? Now, that is a great question. Because if we do not read this passage correctly, we have really missed a trick. Because, you see, what is really happening in the entirety of this narrative as we have been reading it is not that Jesus is on trial. The Jews are on trial. They are the ones who are in the dock. As much as they think it is Jesus there, Jesus is putting them in the dock. The accusation against Jesus by the Jews is an accusation against their own hearts by Jesus. Are you the Christ, they say. Right back at you, says Jesus. Are you even real shepherds? The defense Jesus makes in regards to his status as Christ is his prosecution against their status as people of the covenant. Jesus proves he is the Christ. All the Jews can prove is that they are not even sheep. And the verdict they give to Jesus is his verdict against them. They are found guilty because they have seen his signs and they will not believe in his name. And for those of us who think we've got the Christian life sorted, who think we're safe because of the families we grew up in, who think we're safe because I know all there is to know about the scriptures and about theology, I am theologically straight as a die, people call me sound. Am I absolutely sure that I am not looking to myself as saviour? Am I dependent on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entirely? because of who he is and because of what he's done? Am I absolutely trusting in him entirely because of who he is and because of what he's done? Do I worship him entirely because of who he is and because of what he's done? Am I absolutely certain that I am not following Christ, that I'm following Christ, listening to his voice and trusting in him, or am I actually really living out a facade of the Christian life? while actually trusting in my home, or my holidays, or my friendships, or my family, or my career, my money, my future. And if all those things were taken away now, are you found resting on Jesus? For all of us here tonight, whether Christian or not, this passage puts us in the dock. We are on trial. Do I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, or do I not? Am I a sheep in his flock, or am I not? Am I in total denial about Jesus, waiting for someone who I think will do a better job? Or do I respond to him in total belief? Do you know Jesus tonight? Jesus has not just proven that he is the Christ and therefore God, but he has divided this very room. And all of us are on one side or the other. We are either for him or we are against him. We are either his sheep or we are not. We are either going to live with him in eternity or we are going to die with him um, in eternity, die without him for eternity. And through this courtroom scene where suddenly instead of Jesus is on trial, we find that we are the ones on trial. Jesus has proven forensically tonight which side you are on. Now, that's the warning. Look at the comfort. To those at the time, what would this have meant? 
After these Jewish leaders have been put on trial and have been found wanting, Jesus shows that he is the good shepherd who provides real rescue, real life, and real rest. Not in a Maccabeus sense, but in an eternal sense. Some of us are truly broken tonight. Really, really bereaving. We are really troubled. And Jesus says, look at me. Don't look at the Jews, look at me. He provides this new life and protection even when the people of Israel are under the obstructive leadership of these false teachers. And for us, not only is this a warning to those of us who are Christians and a warning to those who aren't, it is incredibly comforting. There really is someone who can rescue beyond the grave. And to all who listen to his voice, follow him and worship him as God with a capital G, as the Son of the Most High, to them in the suffering of the now, real life and real hope is given through the only one who can give it, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father God, we are struck by the brutal simplicity of Jesus' argument, and we are um, put on edge by uh, the fact that we are on trial. Um, Lord God, I pray for those of us who, who know you, that we would be people who are depending wholly on you, not on other stuff which will only let us down, but wholly on Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, who has our best interests at heart. Heavenly Father, for those of us here in this room who don't know you, Lord God, I really pray that they would find you, that you would seek them out, that they would see that what you say here makes sense. It just makes sense that you are the Christ and that you love them, and I pray that they would come to you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are our good shepherd. Thank you that you save beyond the grave. Thank you so much that you give us eternal life. And that is what we want to be going out with tonight. Real hope and real joy in Christ our Savior. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you in your strong name. Amen.